Good morning, church. Good to see you this morning. You're looking well. Had a good week? Yes? Okay. All right. Always ask you that week, that, that every every week just to see how you've uh, you've made it through. And um, you're here. I guess we can at least say that, right? And it looks good to have you here. For those of you that are joining us online, it's a blessing to have you with us and uh, always a joy to have you tune in for, with us. We do have a lot of announcements this morning, so I hope that you'll pay attention uh, very carefully. There's quite a few things going on and some things that are in the works, and you'll know that here in just a minute. Uh, For the past uh, year, I guess, or longer, there have been some ladies that have been meeting on Tuesday night for a Bible study. I know we have other groups of ladies meeting, but this one's been meeting on Tuesday nights at 6 p.m. They're going to be starting a new study uh, this Tuesday night, and want to make sure that you know that. Ladies, if you're interested, please come to be a part of that should be an exciting study on a Titus 2 woman, a Titus 2 woman. And so I think you'll enjoy that very, very much. Also, we've been announcing this for a while, but our Awana does start this Wednesday night. So parents, if you have a desire for your children to learn the word of God and you want them to grow in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord and you want them to be godly when they're adults and have godly homes and and all that stuff, then you should bring them. You're sitting there thinking, gosh, how could I not bring my kids after that, right? Uh, but we certainly would love to have you come. We've got these flyers uh, that you see behind me here that we'll be asking you to give out. Maybe you know somebody in your neighborhood, a neighbor, somebody, somebody at school, whatever, that uh, would really enjoy a program like this. Uh, many, many times adults will say, you know, I learned a lot of scripture verses growing up in Awana. And uh, it is a valuable, valuable tool. So thank you to those of you who are Helping to lead that, that's going to be going on from 6.15 to 7.45, okay? So just pay attention to the time there, mom and dads, and that's ages K through 8th grade. And you can contact my wife. I know that's a little hard to see there from the size of it, but uh, we'll have that information for you if you want it, okay? So starting this Wednesday night. That means that our Disciples in Action also is starting this week. We've had a nice summer. Thank you to Rick for leading that uh, compassion study through See Jesus. That was great. Had a good turnout for that. And then now we're starting in our fall semester. For those of you that don't know, um, that's how we break it up into semesters. And we usually have three of those and then a summer study. So this will begin the beginning the fall semester. We're going to be doing a study in the class that I'm going to be facilitating, a study on the book of James and uh, mostly centered on the subject of faith. So it may be kind of a a collection of various works as we study through the subject of faith. And I've prayed a lot about this over the last uh, weeks throughout the summer of what the Lord would have us to do. And uh, this is what came back to me because uh, I just feel like often we need to be reminded of what faith really looks like and what it means to be a people of faith. And so this study in the book of James uh, and from other places is going to be Uh, Very challenging in some ways, as I hope that you'll feel a little bit of that this morning. And I say that lovingly, uh, but that's what the Lord wants to do in us. We used to have a youth pastor with us years ago that said, every now and then we need a good holy scrubbing from the Spirit of God. And uh, I've always liked that, and he was right about that. And so uh, that's what this is designed to do as we tackle this subject. Also, dinner will be starting up again. We haven't had that for a long time now through COVID, but we're going to start that up again at 5.30, and uh, we want you to come. It's going to be something that's available to everybody as far as a food item, so all the bases are covered. Uh, We do have someone who has volunteered to do the meals for us every Wednesday night, and that's a real breath of fresh air for a lot of you who've been putting that together, but that doesn't mean that you can't help. 
It doesn't mean that you can't be a part of bringing things. We'll just ask you to coordinate all that well with the person who's doing this, okay? Uh, but 5:30, the price is going to stay the same: four dollars per person, twelve dollars for a family. That's a pretty good deal, right? Right? Yes. My wife and I ate at Subway, and it cost us thirty-five dollars. And that was two sandwiches, two drinks, and two bags of chips. Can you believe that? Anyway, we won't go. Let's get get off of that subject. Anyway, prices are expensive, so that's a good deal. Okay, so we want you to come. But in addition to that, we have a sign-up sheet that Carl has. Thank you, Carl. If you can put your name or would kindly put your name and the number of people that are attending on there, we want you to start practicing this every week uh, because as you who have put together meals know, it's awfully challenging to know what to buy, how much to buy, and not have a lot of waste if you don't know who's coming. And so we really need to get a heads up each week. And so we're instituting this now throughout the remainder of life uh, so that we know what's coming up. We made it easy for you. So on Wednesday nights, a sign-up sheet will be available for the next week. So if you know that you're coming the next week, please let us know when you're there. The other way we've made this easy is that on our homepage on our website and nestled within the website, if you go to visitlaurelhill.org, okay, visitlaurelhill.org on the homepage, scroll down to the ministry section, you'll see some little circles there with various pictures in it. Click on the one that looks like a, a plate of cookies. And in there you'll find a way to do an online sign-up. Okay? And that will come directly to us here at the church. And then you'll just put your name and information in there and the number of people that are coming with you. Okay? That will be very, very helpful to us. And we'll go over this again each week just until we get it settled in you. Because someone's going to say, now what did you say about signing up, Pastor Bruce, for, for dinners? And this ain't my first rodeo, you know what I mean? <laughs> So we know how it works. My brain works the same way. All right, so that's going to be exciting coming up. Also, uh, just as a, a kind of not really a housekeeping thing, but really a very important issue, as you know with the refugee system a, a situation in Af- Afghanistan and across the world, but particularly Afghanistan, uh, the SBCV, which is the Southern Baptist Conservatives of Virginia, which is our state convention, has asked us to announce that there is a... Uh, the beginnings of and going to be an ongoing collection of supplies for Afghan refugees who have now made it into and are making their way into Fort Lee, just south of Richmond. And so the state offices ask if you would consider giving, just go to their website. It's very simple, sbcv.org, and there is a section in there for relief or slash relief and that'll take you to the information of what they're looking for. They're just for the basic necessities. You know, when people flee a country, they pretty much don't take anything with them. They just come with their clothes on their back. And so uh, this is a good way for our local denomination to show the love of Christ in a very tangible way. Now, the other thing that's really big that the elders wanted you to be aware of is that uh, we are aware, and we've talked about this quite a bit now over the last several weeks, the needs that we have in areas of the church. Oh, and I forgot, Peter, I'll mention the class that you're going to be doing here in just a second. We realize that families will only stay at a church if they feel like the whole family is being ministered to, right? Moms, it's very hard for you to bring kids to church if you don't have anywhere for them to be ministered to. And so 
As much as it's been an ongoing need, uh, we know that we have need of nursery workers, and we're, we're looking at two positions there that we need to be filled for nursery workers. Uh, hopefully we can get the Spanish ministry involved in all of this as well. A children's ministry director that you know we've been asking the Lord about, but asking you about as well. Uh, thirdly, someone to come alongside Pastor Scott. Now, Pastor Scott has been working with the Spanish family for quite a while now, and his heart is, is there. And he's still working with our teenagers on Sunday morning for Sunday school, uh, but he needs somebody to come alongside him to help him with the other areas of the teen ministry, okay, the youth ministry, if you will. Then there is a group of people that we really have not done a good job ministering to uh, as a whole over the years, and that is the 20-somethings. These are the singles mainly, uh, the young men and women who are in between high school and, and married life uh, and, and just kind of living life. And, and we really have not done a good job in ministering to that group of people. And so we're praying that God would give us someone or someones to help us in that way as well. And then finally, in the area of social media, uh, we realize that um, there are great usages, if you will, for social media out there that can help promote churches in the community. I was just having a conversation with somebody the other day, and, and it saddens me when this conversation goes this way. When I tell them what church I'm a part of, they don't know what I'm talking about. And I'm not talking about people from the other side of town. I'm talking about people who even live right here behind us. Uh, people that are close to us. And, and we want to make sure that we're making an impact in the community. The real goal for all of us as elders is that we are ministering to every area of life that we can possibly minister to. We want to have the full spectrum filled. Okay? So best case scenario, that is to have volunteers right out of the church. And many of you have done that over the years. We do realize, though, if we don't fill these positions and make sure that there's ministry happening in these areas, Laurel Hill will one day stop being an effective ministry in the community. It's just going to happen by default. And I'm saying it that way, not as a shock factor so much, but just to feel, help you feel the weight of what we feel. We want you to be a part of what we're experiencing when it comes to replacing people. You know, Hamp and I want to serve you until we're 150 years old. But the reality is, right, <laughs> exactly. Thank you, Rick. Good luck. Right. So, again, we can hope for the best, that we can just come in and enjoy our service on Sunday morning and that everything will flow along wonderfully. But, you know, God puts us in places to make that happen as well. We work with him. And you're going to see that from the message this morning as we look at the life of the disciples. So what we're asking and what we're going to do for the next however many weeks until God gives us clarity on whether we have volunteers to fill these positions or whether we begin to talk to you as a church about paying more people in these areas so that we're not neglecting the work of the Lord. We're going to pray about these in our worship services as a church family collectively together. So we go first to the Lord in prayer, uh, again, because it would be easy for us to fill them just by saying, okay, here's what we need, let's just go do it, and forget that we really need to go to the Lord first and let him tell us what he wants, right? Um, with that being said now, Peter Holman and Lindsay, thank you, Peter has been uh, taking care of the young married couples, uh, and they're starting a study by John Piper 
what Jesus demands from the world. That's going to be happening this Wednesday night, okay? Peter's been leading that, and um, wonderful to have Peter as a part of that, and Lindsay, they're a blessed family, precious family to us, and they've stepped into that role some time ago as Scott began to relinquish the, the, that area, as that has also been a great need. And so we're blessed there. But Peter and I were just talking about how we really could use some, well, let me back up. The 20-somethings, if they have nowhere to go that are still single, can filter into Peter's class uh, even for now. But again, we just want to make sure that we're touching the bases of life in the best way that we possibly can. It's that, that, that understanding that we want to be the best we can be for the Lord, right? We don't want to just give the Lord our second best. Amen? I mean, I'm not the only one that feels that way, right? No, because I hear some amens. But we want to give the Lord our best in everything that we do. And so I'm going to have Pastor Hamp come and pray over these areas. And then each week we're going to have one of our elders come and pray as we can. Brother Danny's not here. He's on vacation. And uh, we're going to pray over these specific needs just for a moment. And then we'll get into the, the text of Scripture. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for all that you have blessed us with lord and in first thessalonians 5 you you tell us to rejoice always and the very next verse says pray continually and so lord we just come to you uh in in prayer with this gift that you've given us to be able to speak directly to you lord you, you've heard our needs you know our needs but you ask us to to come to you as your children so lord we're you know that we're looking for someone to to work with the, the children in the nursery, those sweet little ones, the ones whose minds are so open to learning. And, and we just want them to know the truth, that you love them, that your son died for them, that uh, you have prepared a place for them in heaven someday. And so, Lord, we just ask that you, you show us who that person is, that person who is, j- just desires to do that. Also, uh, just to oversee the other children's ministries, Lord, so, uh, someone who, who just loves organizing things for, for kids to, to do, to help them to grow uh, spiritually, to emotionally, uh, to grow closer to you, as well as our, our 20-something, um, as we call them. But, but these are young adults, Lord, ones who are just starting off in life. They're, they're no longer... In, in school, they're joining the workforce and all the demands that comes on that. But, Lord, someone who can minister to them, to, to help them, to help them guide them through all the difficulties of life. And, Lord, someone to help Pastor Scott. You know, Lord, we just thank you. We rejoice in all that he has done and the work that he's doing with our Latino brothers and sisters. Lord, we just thank you for that. And, and, and he needs help. So we're, we ask that you show us who that person is. And, Lord, we just, we just thank you for all that you've given us. We rejoice in all of those here who do everything from maintain our grounds and our facilities to teach Sunday school to, to, call it, uh, to come at the drop of a hat when we need help. Lord, you, you have blessed us with much. And we're not selfishly asking for more. Lord, you, your word says, you know, that the harvest is, the field is white for the harvest, but the workers are few. 
And, and so, Lord, we're just asking your guidance on, on finding them. So, Lord, we rejoice in the fact that we know that you've already prepared them. Um, we just need to know who they are. So we thank you for that. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. Yes. Thank you, Pastor Hamp. appreciate that. All right. Well, um, let's stretch your legs here for a moment. Let's go ahead and turn to our text in Matthew chapter 10. Stand with me, if you will, and let's read verses 1 through 4 this morning. I'm pretty much just going to spend my time on verse 1, but I want to get the whole context here as we read this together. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now the names of the 12 apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. All right, amen. You may be seated. Um, just kind of tagging on what Pastor Hamp said there, uh, I was sharing with the early service that uh, in the days of Judaism, when the temple was still very active, you remember Jesus referred to the temple as the place of prayer. And so uh, really, in a lot of ways, we have neglected that just corporately as a church family. We are people who pray, but what we really want to be is a church that prays. Uh, we want to be a model church that really is a church burdened with prayer. And so as much as it may seem a little different for you in the next couple weeks or months, however long the Lord tarries with this, uh, we want to make sure that prayer is our priority and that we're not just being hearers, but we're also really being effective in what we're doing in our communication with the Lord. Okay, so now with all of this being said, it really does amazingly fit with the text of Scripture today and what I had prepared for us in our message as a result of where we are in Matthew 10. Uh, thank you to Brendan for last week. That was awesome. We had a good time with you, and I just appreciate what the Lord's doing in you and with you. That was a real blessing. So uh, even if you did forget your notes, and the Lord kind of... Those of you who weren't here in the early service, Brendan missed page five of his notes. And uh, as Joey brought them up, he says, is this sabotage? <laughs> Not to Joey, but uh, to the spirit. And uh, who knows what, what was going on behind the scenes there as Satan was trying to keep things from happening. But did a good job. Really appreciate that a lot. All right, so I've titled this first part of the message, The First Workers in the Field of Souls. The First Workers in the field of souls. And I did that intentionally because I think that's what the Lord is opening up to us here. He wants us to specifically see into the lives of these men whom he called who became those people, the first of the workers in the field of souls. Now you look what God has done from the beginning since those guys were the first ones who were called and became the foundational pillars of the early church. Isn't it amazing what God has done through just a few and we'll talk about these guys, so that's all I'm going to say right now. But that's how I'm breaking it up. Part two will be uh, their lives specifically and what God did with them, how he worked through them, and what became of them. And so we'll talk about that next time. But today we want to look specifically as this, at this commissioning of the twelve and a little bit, just very, very briefly at the end, the impact that they had. I won't dwell on that, we just, but particularly the commissioning of these twelve. Now if you notice at the end of chapter 9... 
Pastor Hemp just alluded to this in his prayer, that Jesus left them with hearing his command to pray for workers in the field. You remember that? Let's look back at that in verse 37 if you have your Bibles open or you've got your nice little neat Matthew notebooks open. You just flip back a page and you'll see where Jesus says, the harvest truly is plentiful. Lots of souls are out there, but sadly the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Okay. Now what they didn't know as they heard the Lord say that is that God was about to commission them to be those first workers. Okay. So in the minds of many people, we are very similar to this. We hear the Lord saying, here's what we need. And you may have heard that this morning as Pastor Hamp was praying and as I was delivering to you the needs we have. You may be saying, Lord, we need these people. But not necessarily hearing in your heart God saying, I'm so thankful you're praying that way because I really want to start with you. That's a real possibility, isn't it? Well, God may be touching the hearts of some even here to say, yeah, you're some of my first ones that I want to help fulfill these positions that are open. I don't know. We'll see what God does in your heart with all of that, but I would encourage you to be open to what God is doing. Now they're commissioning. Notice what Matthew says in verse 1. He summons, or Jesus summons, summoned his 12 disciples. Now up to this point, Matthew really doesn't give us any indication of the other of the 12. He basically just covers the first few, Simon and Andrew, James and John, and then himself. But evidently throughout this, the others have come along. And so he now says at one point, Jesus summons the 12. Now this idea of being summoned is what you already know it to be. If you've ever stood at the doorway of your home and a deputy sheriff is standing there with a summons, you know what that is, right? It is an official call from a magistrate, from an elected uh, or a, a judge or somebody in official position who's calling you for a very serious reason. And they're not giving you the option, right? They're not saying to you, oh, um, you know, if you don't have anything else to do on Tuesday morning at 9 o'clock, we would love for you to show up at the courthouse. But that's only if you don't have anything else to do, right? Now, you know that when the man comes or the woman comes to give you the summons, you're being required to do something. That's what's going on here. The Lord is giving an official call face-to-face with them, very authoritative, urgent, with their presence being imperative. He wanted them to be front and center. And so again, this was not a casual, hey guys, can you come here for just a second? I just got something I want to share with you. No, it was much more than that. And what, he, what they didn't know was he was moving them from being the learners, okay, that's what a disciple is, he was moving them from being a learner or a student of what he was doing over the three years to being an apostle, to being an apostle. Now, what's an apostle? An apostle, officially, if we looked up the word, would be a delegate, or some people like to refer to it as an ambassador. You know, an ambassador is that person that carries the weight of the king or the official from that country, and you're taking that information and whatever it is because of the authority that's been given to you to be the proclaimer of the official's word. And so an apostle is just that, officially commissioned by Christ to go and do the work of the Lord. And you see this transition right there in verse 2. 
Notice as Matthew is giving the names, he doesn't call them disciples. He calls them apostles. And so there's this intercession, if you will, from learner to someone who's going to now do the work for the Lord. Okay, And I want you to hold on to that because it's going to have real relevance for you as you listen to this. These men are going to be used of God. But first, what the Lord did, if you're looking at the process of how God works, and you really want to understand that, is at first God awakened them to who he is. There has to be an awakening of who God is, meaning God had to awaken them from their sinful sleep, if you will. We all come into the world sinful. We're told that very clearly in Scripture. And God has to awaken us to help us to see the blindness of our hearts, to help us to see where we really are in our disconnect with him, if you will. And that has to happen to everybody if they're going to come to him. There's no person that that cannot be the case with. In other words, at at some point in every person's life, whether they accept him or not, God will come to them through the power of his spirit, through the work of the spirit, and he will question them as to who he is. He will introduce himself. I was just in conversation with a young man not long ago about that very subject. He says, you know, I, 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 I grew up in the Catholic Church. He said, I, I believe who God is, but, but that's pretty much it. I'm more of a facts person, and I really struggle with faith. And I said to him, I said, well, and you have to understand this was over a course of time that we had this discussion. I said to him, finally, I really think God is introducing himself to you. He wants you to know who he is. And that fits with Scripture, that there is no person who seeks after God. We may say in our own mind and heart that I have come to God, I have come to faith, I I sought out God. But the beauty of the gospel and the truth of the Lord Christ is, is that he says, no, no man does that, not by himself, that the Spirit of God is working in his heart or her heart before they come to him. Listen to what God says in Romans 3.11. No man seeks after God, quoting the Old Testament prophet. No man seeks after God. What's he saying? You may be one who's here today saying, well, I've been a part of the church. I I grew up in the church and I've, I've got a lot of knowledge about the things of God. Well, rejoice because if you know him personally as your Lord and Savior, it's because he came to look for you. Paul would make that clear to the church in Philippi in chapter 2, verse 21, for they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. That's Jesus referring, he's referring back to Jesus there, is that when Jesus was here on the earth, now after, when Paul's writing this, Jesus is already gone, but he's basically saying in a person's sinful self, there is nothing about them that would cause them to seek Jesus. They're not going to do it. That has to be the work of God moving in their hearts first. But that should be very encouraging because it should show you the love that God has for you and the value that you have to him if he would come and open your heart like that. And God has always done that. Here's another passage, John 6:44. No one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father who sent me draws him. Nobody can come to me. There it is again. I just want you to see another scripture reference. And so when God introduces himself, and again, he will to every soul, Mark it down. At some point in a person's life, young or old, God is going to come to them in his own power, in his own way. I'm not talking about necessarily some mystical explosion of, 
of, of lights and bombs and all that kind of stuff. But in the heart, God will come to that person and he will ask them the question, what are you going to do with my son Jesus? Who do you say that he is? That will happen. Is he God come in the flesh or is he just another prophet, another good man, whoever he is? God will come to that person. And so God first awakens a person from their sinfulness into a mindset of thinking. God wants us to think. He challenges us. He opens our intellect to say these questions to us and to ask these things to us, to think about our own soul. Where am I going to spend eternity? What's going to happen to me after I leave this earth? We all know that death is imminent. There's not one soul that's going to miss that. We can wish we can, but it's not going to happen. And so the question intellectually to us becomes, where are you going to spend your eternity? What's going to happen to you? And he does that because he knows and has decreed this, that there is no in-between position. You are either a child of God, fully serving him, living your life for him, or you're a child of the devil. Your father is the devil. It's very clear. Even the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews 11.6 says, For he who comes to God must believe that he is. There is the understanding of faith here. That word believe is to have faith or trust in. And you could put those together, meaning the same thing. And that doesn't come about without thinking. You and I don't do anything without first thinking about what we're going to do. Now, that's a little relative, I understand. But when it comes to the major decisions of life and something that's very impacting in our lives, we don't do anything without thinking. So the Spirit speaks to our hearts and then our intellect is awakened to these questions and we have to come to the place of determining for ourselves with God's help who he is, accepting who he is. Which is why Paul would say in Romans 12:2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your what? of your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There has to be the intellectual process. That phrase, renewing of the mind, is the transformation by the Holy Spirit. He is the one who does it. Now listen, that transformation though comes in conjunction with the study of God's Word. Very important that you understand that and meditating on it. In other words, there is this ability, some people think, to have just the Spirit of God move in them. They don't need the Bible. They don't need the Word of the Lord. They don't need what the Bible teaches. Or I can just get bits and pieces of it, and as long as I hang on to a few things, that's good enough. But that's not what Scripture teaches us. Scripture says that we have a renewed mind as we dwell and meditate on on the word of the Lord. Listen to the psalmist, Psalm 119.11. Your word I have treasured in my heart. Now to treasure something, beloved, means it's very dear to you, right? You treasure your children. You treasure your grandchildren. You treasure your spouse, hopefully. Right? You treasure certain things about life. You know what that means. And the, the psalmist says, your word, the scriptures, I have treasured in my heart. Why? So I won't sin against you. Meaning that unless I have your word implanted in my mind and soul, sin will come out and it will rebel against you. And so the thinking process after I've been awakened transforms me so that I want to love his word and continually live for him. 
Paul would say to the church in Colossae. Chapter 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Boy, don't you love that? It's that openness of the heart. It's the beseeching of Paul to say, let the word come in. Let the word of Christ richly dwell in you. Don't you just love that? It's just so beautiful how he writes this with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual song, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. How many of you this morning are thankful that you belong to the Lord? Praise the Lord. I mean, it's, it's just painful to think about what life would be like without Christ, isn't it? What a joy it is to know that Jesus has saved us and the Spirit of God lives in us. So back to these men now. When Jesus called these men, it was not only with the motive to use them for his work, but to first transform them. That's what we've been seeing, and he's going to continually do that as we get through the, the gospel record here. First inwardly, listen which would then change them outwardly. Inward, there must be a change if there's going to be a right kind of outward change. And there are many things that people do outwardly that are good and wholesome. But if it's not driven by the Spirit of the Lord and motivated by the Word of the Lord and the power of the Spirit, then that works becomes just something that's really futile. It may have good intentions, but it won't accomplish what the Lord wants it to accomplish. He is first. Our souls have been awakened to him. He saved us from our sinful uh, condemnation. And so we then live for him. And there are many people who have never been transformed in their hearts because they've never accepted the call of God first. They may have heard that call of God and sadly rejected. Or maybe the time has not come for them to first come face to face with who Jesus is. That may be you today. This may be the very day where you are encountering the Spirit of God asking you the question, who do you say that Christ is? Is he Lord and Master and Savior of your life? Notice I said of your life, not just of the church, but your life personally and in your relation to him personally. Now, after God introduces himself to the disciples, there's a second part to his call, and you may have gathered this already, and that is to follow him. And the very simple understanding of this is is that no person God calls is called to just receive salvation and sit on the bench. Now, that's a sports term. I'm a sports guy. I played a lot of basketball in my day, and I sat on the bench a lot. I understand the splinters. I understand what it means. There were times where the guys ahead of me that were far better playing the positions than I was were intense, tough games, and I would sit on the bench and I would say, Oh, Lord, please don't have him put me in the game. (laughs) I was very content to jump up and down when we won and enjoy the celebration as the team won the regional tournament. I can remember that vividly, but I was awfully excited. I didn't have to go in to mess it up. Right, But the point is, beloved, God never calls anybody to be on the team and just sit the bench. I hope you hear that. You've never been called to do nothing. Notice Luke 9 says, Jesus was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. And we say, okay, I can do that. 
But often we leave the last part out and take up his cross daily and follow me. That's where we swallow hard and we gulp sometimes and we feel the fear and the anxiety of it all and we say, you know, I, I can do this, Lord, if you just let me sit in my room. If you just let me sit in the church quietly and not have any official say so, and the world doesn't know anything about me. I actually had a couple say this to me not long ago, not from our church, but they're in a part of another church where they said they can just go in, sit in the back. Nobody knows they're there. They can leave. Nobody knows they left, and everything is great. Well, there's a time for that when we're dealing with certain things in life. I don't want to minimize that. I don't want to be sensitive to people's hurts. But the reality is God has not called us to a life like that in his family. He's called us to follow him. And that means more than just saying so. Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels one day and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Now, hear me clearly. I'm not saying that salvation comes as a result of our works. Make sure you write that down and underline it. Pastor's not saying we're saved by our works. What Jesus is saying here, though, is that our works give evidence of our salvation. They prove what we believe. How we live this life tells everybody around us what we really believe. Those of you who have children, you don't mind showing the pictures of those beautiful darlings to everybody, do you? Because you know that they belong to you. And you love them. Now, some of you may hide some of the pictures of certain ones of your kids, right? (laughs) I'm just being silly about that. But you understand the point. Mark 8, 38, another one. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Whoever is ashamed of me. Now, He's not talking about just, again, sitting quietly, nestled under the covers of your own spiritual darkness and saying, Lord, I believe you, but nobody else in the world knows that I'm a believer. In fact, ask yourself this question. I was challenged with this one time, and it stung me pretty badly. I worked in manufacturing many, many years ago in Lynchburg, and and there was a guy that I had witnessed to quite a bit and um, had shared a lot of things with, and he did not come to Christ, and then... Eventually he did, but then the question came with, from some other people is that, Bruce, I didn't know you were a Christian. I mean, you've heard this before, but it's really a very good question. How many people in your life know that you truly love Jesus with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? You see, Jesus says, my people are not ashamed of me. If they are, there's going to be something else to pay eventually. Now, each of these statements I want you to see is not a call to works. Okay, now I want to dissect this carefully for you so you're not confused. But it's a call to serve. There's a big difference between working for the Lord and serving the Lord. Many of us can say, oh, I work so hard, I work so hard, I work so hard. And we understand what we're talking about that. But we really need to change our language. We really need to be thinking that we serve God that we get the, per- the privilege, the joy of serving our God, right? Too often, positions in the church or works for God become drudgery, right? It's like the Monday morning blahs. Ah, I can't believe I got to do this again. I was just there and I got to do this all over again. 
But when we change our language because we understand more clearly what really is going on here, we say, oh, what a joy it is to serve the Lord. Do you see? So there, this is not works that Jesus is calling to. He's calling them to. He's calling them to serve him with their whole hearts in the field of souls. Look, the fields are ripe. They're white. They're ready for the harvest. And this is a farming term. They were they would have understood this. Just open your eyes, men, and look. Look at the fields that are ready to harvest. Pray that God would send workers out into the fields. And now he's saying to them, you're going to be my first ones now that I have your hearts. Okay. So he's taking them, and watch this, he's taking them from a learner to a servant, which is what he wants to do with all of us, where we go from praying for workers to being the workers, which again is what the writer of the Hebrews is addressing himself. When he's fussing, the Spirit of God is fussing at these people a little bit because they've missed the point. Notice in chapter 5 of Hebrews what he says, Concerning him we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. In other words, we want to tell you about Jesus, but you've grown dull. I mean, you've you've come complacent in a sense. You've gotten used to the routine so much that you're not really hearing anymore. And how do I know that? Watch this. By this time, you ought to be teachers. But you have need for somebody to teach you the basic principles of the oracles of God. You've come to need milk and not solid food. But listen, everybody who takes part only in milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature who because of practice, notice that in verse 14, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. What's the Lord saying? He's saying, look, you cannot as my child sit there day after day after day after day, week after week after week, and just keep taking in without giving out, without being able to say, Lord, I know this may be a challenge, but I'll step out and I'll do this if that's what you really want me to do. The writer is saying, look, but you've become so dull, we've got to stay on the basic principles here. You've not gotten past the things that you should be past. And the way you do that is you practice. That's why I gave Brendan the opportunity last Sunday. You need to practice. That's why Rick did the Wednesday night class. You need to practice. We need practice to be what God wants us to be. And you can only do what God calls you to do when you say, yes, Lord, I'll show up for practice. I'll be what you want me to be and I'll work at what you want me to do. This is exactly why we're asking you to consider some of these things that we're praying about because people don't really grow in their relationship with God until they depend on him to accomplish the things that he wants to to accomplish through them. Rick and I have had this conversation a couple of times. It's amazing what the teacher learns, right? I mean, you walk away from a class or some study and you're like, man, I feel like I've, I've absorbed everything. I, I'm the, the one who's gotten it all because you have to dig it out and you've got to get into it and, and figure out what God is doing and what he's saying. Well, that's the way life works with God. James 2, what use is it, he says, my brethren, what use is it? If someone says he has faith, but he has no works, what's the point? It does nothing, really. Can that faith save him? 
Well, we do know that faith comes, uh, salvation comes by faith, but that's not James's point. Listen as he goes on. If a brother or sister is without clothing and is in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, and yet you do not give them what's necessary for their body, what good is that? I mean, right? Even so, faith now. He's saying if you understand that, that basic principle in life, Faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. It doesn't do any good. It just has no value. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. In other words, I do believe you might say, but I just don't show it like you do. And some people feel that way. You have a different giftedness, and so I don't, can't, I don't have what you have. I can't do what you do. Or I'm just not good in serving, but I believe God... I'm faithful in everything. I mean, I show up for everything. I'm there on Sundays and at other times, but I just don't have what it takes to do ministry. And God says, that's where I step in. That's exactly where he wants us to be so that his power begins to take over. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But listen to what James says. Show me your faith without the works and I'll show you my faith by my works. He's challenging the the reader here. You say you have faith. Well, I'm telling you, according to the Spirit of God, that they both have to go together. Faith and works have to go simultaneous, be simultaneous. You can't be a person of faith, is what he's saying, and not have works to back it up. Was Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Verse 24, You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. They have to go together. In the same way was Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. In other words, when Rahab took part in the spies coming in, she became a part of the deal. And worked through the situation with them. And so now the spirit looking way back is pointing to the church and saying, that's the way I want you to be. I want you to look at your life. And if you're born again, then I want you to make sure that you're having a place of service in my family. Whether that be in the church itself, uniquely like this on a Sunday morning, or it just simply be a part of the work that God is doing externally. Sadly, the choice of many believers is to be a perpetual student. Is it we just I'll just be that person who can't stop getting enough degrees of Bible and sitting and listening and learning, and that all has its place. That's good. I never want to minimize that. But that's not enough because you know that if you don't put your degree to work, you don't really use your degree, right? Now, I understand we could argue about the technicality of that, but I think you see the point. And the truth is, beloved, and I mean no harm here, really. I I say this very sensitively. When you become a Christian, your very next step after he saves you is to respond to him through service. That's the very next step. That should be the automatic default. You're no longer someone who just prays for workers. That's essential but you're someone who says, I'll be a worker. I'll be a worker. 
And so God looks to his people and he wants them to pick up the shovel. He wants them to grab the rake, get in the driver's seat, which all of you all understand that. You remember when you took your driver's classes and you sat in the classroom? I guess they still do that now. I'm not sure. But you studied and you studied and you didn't want to fail that test, the written part. You remember that? And then came the day where you had to get behind the wheel. Well, what if they just said, okay, here's your written record. You did, you passed the test, but you never got behind the wheel. Some of you would be going, uh, that's probably not a good idea. No, you know that the two parts have to go together. And that's all we're saying here. And so when you accept the call to be a child of the Lord, and listen, one of our elders said this in a meeting the other day. He kind of looked up and said, you know, the reality is in the family of God, there should never be a vacancy that needs to be filled, or at least for very long, if God's people are anxious to serve, right? And that means you either fill the need if you can yourself personally, or you diligently work to make it happen by others. You say, okay, maybe I physically can't do this anymore. I just don't have what it takes to make that happen. But what I'll do is I'll give money to pay somebody to do it. I'll make sure that my part is fulfilled in prayer and encouragement and talking to others about the need. You all are out in the community. You could say, hey, we have these needs at our church. Do you know anybody that could fulfill them? And you become a part of the process instead of just saying, okay, well, hope for the best and maybe it'll work out and maybe it won't. And you see the point, how it can go the other way? Listen to the Lord's final commission to the disciples. You know this well in Matthew 28. Go, this is right at the end of Matthew's writings. Jesus is just about to be resurrected here. And as he's going up, he says, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to what? Observe all that I commanded you. Now that word observe means to hold fast to, to maintain, to keep. Really it's an emphasis on service, to serve. And his commandment was not only live a life that's pleasing to the Lord inwardly, but tangibly go. Go now and do the work that I've commissioned you to do and serve and then teach others to do your job. That's what I was saying in the very beginning. Pastor Hamp and I want to stay here forever. Brother Danny is an elder and Pastor Scott and we're looking for others to be elders and deacons and we all want to stay here forever. But the reality is we're all going to grow older and we're going to either watch Laurel Hill fade away into the sunset or we're going to step back and we're going to rejoice with the next group that comes in and they pick up the mantle and they run with it and they make it their own and souls come to Christ. And the process is repeated. We want to be a part of that, right? Everybody just shake their head. You can just humor me. Just agree with me even if you don't. It makes me feel better. And I'll go home with warm fuzzies. Okay. So, <clears throat> very, very important. If we don't develop leaders and encourage people to become a part of Laurel Hill, um, we don't know what the future will look like, but it may not be very good. And so the caution is here, don't be like the rich young ruler. I understand the context. The rich young ruler did everything that the Lord had commanded in his word, and when he finds Jesus, he comes and he says, I've done all of this. What else do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, one last thing. Give everything you have away. 
What? Now see, here's the point. Jesus didn't need him to give everything away. But the guy needed to be willing to give everything away. You see, it was a call of dedication. Where's your heart? Where's your heart really with God? That's the challenge. So when it comes to service, that's what the Lord is doing in all of us. Where's your heart? Are you with me? Are you really with me? Are you so wrapped up in your day-to-day routine and the stresses and struggles of life and the fearfulnesses of life that you just put me on the back burner and you become like the Hebrew writer, you're dull of hearing? And sometimes we need these challenges as the Lord lays it out for us because to be a true Christian means you trust Jesus as your Savior, but when you trust him, you live your life for him. That's the true believer. In fact, never does Scripture, and I challenge you to find this for me if you can, because I know you won't, never does Scripture leave us with the notion that a person could be saved and not have Jesus as Lord. And as Lord, then they understand that they must serve him, right? Because the word Lord means master, and masters are not masters without servants. So if you call him Lord, then you must be a servant. And a servant's not just in the heart. A servant is also in the actions. Listen to this from one writer. He said, the true convert is a disciple, a person who has accepted and submitted himself to Jesus Christ, whatever that may mean or demand. The truly converted person is filled with the Holy Spirit and given a new nature that yearns to obey and worship the Lord who has saved him. Even when he is disobedient, he knows he's living against the grain of his new nature, which is to honor and please the Lord. He loves righteousness and hates sin, including his own. Jesus' supreme command, therefore, is for those who are his disciples to become his instruments for making disciples of all nations. That's a great quote. And so just to be clear, the Lord means, to follow him means you're going to need to get your hands dirty. You've got to step out of the box. That means you've got to give up some time. You've got to sacrifice what you want for he wants. It may mean you change your daily routine. And that's what these men did. And we'll see next time, even to their final breath. But it took a long time for them to get there because they're no different than you and I are. And this is important. We're going to go through this quickly, but just listen carefully because I think this puts us in their seat, if you will. They had so many different issues. It was just amazing. They had jobs, just like you and I do. They had families, just like we do. At least some of them did. They had their daily routine. I'm sure that there was a morning routine for many of them where they got up and they said, you know, I got to have my coffee first. Uh, I just need to sit down and read a little bit of the paper. I got to do something. I'm sure they had all those kind of routines about them. And I'm being silly about that. But, you know, routines are part of everybody's life. But they also had a lot of fears, just like we do. We know that from Scripture because they knew that Jesus was about to stir things up. And that caused a lot of anxiety among them, especially when they, he, they knew he was going to stir up the leaders, the people that were supposed to be leading the nation of Israel. And so you can imagine being in their shoes. Kind of like shepherds do in churches when they stir things up sometimes. Because when things get stirred up is when action begins to happen and people begin to change. 
And if their fears weren't enough, they were full of pride, they were full of worry, anger, and frustration. They argued among themselves about who's the greatest. James and John's mom wanted to know if her boys could be on the top slot, right? And in addition to all that, they had a serious problem with uh, commitment. Saying, oh, I'll follow you to the day that I die. Oh, really? No, you won't. Because even when the trouble arose and they were facing it full on, they scattered, denying him the one that they had lived with and said that they would never abandon because they were more afraid of their own lives and what would happen to them. And so the men God chose to follow him were really very weak in a lot of ways. I mean, they really weren't much to write home about, but yet Jesus still used them and he spent a lot of blood, sweat and tears to train them. But he did it because he loved them and because he knew it was the Father's plan and Jesus was always obedient to the Father's plan. From a human perspective, it seems like a really bad plan. Doesn't it? I mean, can we just be honest? Really? This is your plan? To take a bunch of ragtag guys and change the world? I mean, nobody does that. There's no world in the world, company in the world, place in the world, business in the world that finds losers to be their best employees. But that's what the Lord did. And he did that because he knew they couldn't do it on their own. And that's where we are. The reason that you and I don't step up to serve him more is because we look at ourselves and we say, I can't. Or sometimes I won't. And the Lord looks at us and he says, I know you can't. I know you can't. That's what I'm for. I fill you with my spirit And I empower you with my spirit. If you trust me and just have a little faith, believe in what I can do through you, and you'll be amazed at what I can do. And guess what happened? The church was birthed. They became the first ones. In fact, we're told that they became the pillars of the church. These 12 guys, I like to call them losers, and I say that affectionately, He filled them to serve. And that's the way it's been through all the years. God takes the most worthless people and he makes something from them. Good, wholesome people in a lot of ways, but some people that have a lot of work that need to be done. You know, we look at some of the the prime examples of Scripture and we think of them as being people who are flawless, like Noah. Well, Noah had a tremendous amount of faith and built the ark over 120 years, but you know what happened right after the flood? He gets drunk. And his family has to cover up his nakedness. Abraham doubted God, lied about who his wife was because he was afraid of the king, committed adultery with his handmaiden, Hagar. Isaac, his son, did something very similar about lying about who he was and about his wife. guess kind of like father, like son, right? Jacob took advantage of his brother Esau by lying about the birthright and stealing that from his brother. Moses was a murderer who got angry and struck the rock instead of speaking to the rock. Aaron, who is Moses' brother, led the people into idolatry, idolatry by making a golden calf. While Moses is up on the mountain 
receiving the law of God to bring down to the people. And here's his brother tempted by the evils of the people and now succumbs to that and gives in and creates this idol. Joshua didn't obey the Lord by driving out all the people of the land that God told him to do. Samson was filled with lust and passion for women and pride. He was a mess. David committed adultery and murder, who was the king of Israel. Jonah blatantly disobeyed God. But amazingly, that's the record of the people that God uses. So don't give me or God the excuse that you're not going to be able to do it. God laughs at that. And he looks at us and he says, that's your pride talking. That's your fear. Don't listen to that. Trust me and you will be amazed what I will do through you. And that's what these men did. And why is that? The why of why God uses us in our weaknesses? Because it puts him on display. It magnifies him. You and I become dust, and he becomes everything. And that's the way it should be. Paul said of himself when he came to the Corinthian church, Most gladly, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I'm well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distress, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Listen, all these people were used of God, not because of some work on their own or some predetermined plan of ministry. You know, they didn't sit down and say, okay, here's what we're going to do. I'm not saying they didn't have plans. But what they did do is they just simply trusted God. And they left him to do the work. That's why the Bible doesn't teach about methods of ministry or styles or details about ministry. And In fact, listen to Paul's plan of ministry. Here's Paul's plan. Paul the apostle. Okay? Here's his plan when he came to Corinth. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in trembling and my message and my preaching were not persuasive with words of wisdom but only in demonstration of the spirit and of power. That's the preacher. We say, Paul? That was Paul? No, you got that wrong. He was the greatest of missionaries and apostles that the world has ever seen. But when Paul looked at his heart, he says, you know, no, you know what? I don't know, Jack Diddley. But here's what I do know. Jesus is Lord, and he saved me, and I'll tell you what he wants. And so in of myself, I'm fearful. I'm, I'm scared to death, but I believe who he is, and I know we can accomplish much, and you will accomplish much through that. He's t- totally depending on the Lord. So... In the context of Matthew, that's where we are. And I think it's very important to remember and one that I often miss. I really do. God can make something from nothing. We don't have to be the next latest and greatest. God delights to use us in our weaknesses. And it's not important what we see from our ministry whether we have big results or not. But what God does in ministry, the only thing that these men knew was that God had called them to serve. That's all they knew. And they were given the greatest task known to man, which was to take the Lord's teachings into the world and God would create the church. Aren't you thankful for those guys? Really? I mean, think about it. If it weren't for those 12 fearful, anxious, 
unnerved men who obeyed the Lord and let the Spirit of God work in them, if it weren't for them, you would not have what you have today. It's really that basic. It all started right there. And so the same way for us, the only requirement is we obey and we use what is available to us. The disciples, listen again, I I hate to get fixated on this, and I will be done here in just a second, I promise you. They didn't have any ministry tools. They didn't have any books on how to do ministry. They didn't have any fancy lights and sound. There were no big arenas and stages. There were no marketing gimmicks, nothing. They just obeyed. God said, go and make disciples. You say, I don't know how to make a disciple. Disciple, yes, you do. You just tell them what God did in your heart, and God will do the rest. You say, it's really that simple? Yeah. Does that mean you don't have to talk more? Of course you have to talk more. But it's the same story. Look, I was nothing. I was undone. I was lost. I was on my way to hell, and Jesus opened my heart and my eyes, and I saw him for who he is and who I am, and he came into my heart, and he gave me new life. And like the blind man who got his sight, he says, all I can tell you is that, look, That guy over there did it, (laughs) and now I'm changed. For every person who's ever had Christ open their heart and the Spirit of God come in, you know what I'm talking about. There's no magic bullet. It's just opening your heart by faith. And look what God did through them, and we'll close with this, verse 1. He gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. You think when the boys woke up the first day Jesus called them, they knew that they were going to do that? And the book of Acts, by the way, is filled with these examples of what these guys did. Just some fishermen, tax collector, hated by everybody. One guy who wanted to take over Rome by himself. And God literally turns the world spiritually upside down because they just obeyed. Folks, that's what I'm calling us to do. That's what the elders are calling us to do, is to trust God first and foremost. Get our eyes off of what we see and what we think, and first of all, just simply say, God, whatever it is you want from us, we're going to do it, if you'll just give us the tools. And you know what God's going to say? If I want you to do it, I've already given you the tools. You just got to use them. In his book, Quiet Talks on Service, S.D. Gordon gives us an imaginary account of Jesus' return to heaven after his ascension. As the angel Gabriel greets Jesus, he asks, Master, you died for the world, did you not? To which the Lord replies, Yes. You must have suffered much, the angel says. And again, Jesus answers, Yes. Do they all know that you died for them? No. No. Only a few in Palestine know about it so far, Jesus says. Well then, what's your plan for telling the rest of the world that you shed your blood for them? Jesus says, well, I asked Peter and James and John and Andrew and a few others if they would make it the business of their lives to tell others. And then the ones that they tell could tell others and they in turn could tell still others. And finally it would reach the furthest corner of the earth and all would know the thrill and power of the gospel. But suppose Peter fails. And suppose after a while John just doesn't tell anybody. And what if James and Andrew are ashamed or afraid? Then what? 
I have no other plans, Jesus said. I'm counting entirely on them. You may have never had the impact or will ever have the impact that the 12 had. But don't forget the starfish story. Do you remember that? The little girl who's walking along the beach and she sees the thousands of starfish. And she just picks up one, throws it in the ocean. An old man walks by and he says, Honey, what are you doing? That's not going to make any difference at all. She picks up another one, throws it in the ocean and says, Made a difference for that one, didn't it? That's our plan. Right? We just encounter the people in front of us and do the work the Lord's called us to do. Okay? Amen? Amen. All right. Well, let's pray. Father, as always, we, we come to you opening our hearts to you, acknowledging without any hesitation that we are so weak, we are powerless. We grumble, we complain, we fight, we kick, we bite, we scratch, we claw. We come up with all the reasons why it just won't work. And over and over again, you display your amazing power through your word and through your people. And all you did with these people is open their hearts and they responded favorably and they obeyed. And so, Lord, what we're asking here is that as we look at ministry needs, is that you would help us, first of all, examine our own hearts to make sure we're in the faith, that, that you have not just become something that we add to our lives, another block to check, but that you truly are Savior and Lord, that we have submitted ourselves fully to you because we know that without you we are nothing and we cannot make it to heaven without your precious gift of salvation. So Lord, then we're asking you to open our minds and to help us to see what it is that you want from us, adjust us, guide us, direct us, and you said that you would, and then we just want to walk in that way. Lord, we are very content to be exactly who you want us to be, but help us to be so ever discontent with anything other. So, Lord, we give you this time. We give you our hearts, fresh and new, and I'm speaking for our church family. And just pray that you would be pleased, if it's so much in your heart, to use us for your glory. Give us hearts that are filled with faith and not fear. And may we go forth loving, graciously, kindly, mercifully, living out Jesus every day. And so we ask you to do this in us, we pray now in Jesus' name. And all God's people said...